Well, if you would this morning, <clears throat> turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7 as uh, we conclude this um, series on the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and today we do conclude with revival, um, the revival that comes from uh, the Ark, you might say. Um, I certainly believe there's great continuity between today's text and all that has gone before um, in, in the last few chapters. Um, the Ark is still the centerpiece <clears throat> of these events, um, but also in the bigger picture, um, this is kind of essentially the end of the Judges cycle that we've referred to um, both in this series and previously when we look at the book of Judges. Um, the, the nation's relationship with God, you might say, is about to change because they're about to demand a king. Um, and, and so this cycle comes to a conclusion that the judges have kind of overseen um, the cycle of rebellion, you may remember, rebellion, retribution, repentance, and revival. Um, it started in Judges 2, uh, kind of overtly laid out for us how Israel, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, that is the rebellion. Uh, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. Uh, they provoked the Lord to anger. That's the retribution part. Uh, they slid into sin. God began to discipline them for their own good and, and call them to repentance. Um, they abandoned the Lord, served the Bells and the Ashtaroth. That cycle has played out over and over and over again in their history as we move into 1 Samuel. Uh, that idolatry, rebellion against Jehovah and His commands, it's what ultimately led to their defeat at the hand of their enemies, including the Philistines, as we've recently studied. Um, and the retribution um, uh, at God's sovereign hands, um, using the Philistines, in this case, to deal it out, um, it eventually does lead them back to repentance and a brief period of revival. That's the cycle that occurs over and over and over again in Judges and also early in 1 Samuel. Um, and now we're stepping back into uh, that cycle, kind of at the end of God's retribution of Israel here. Um, his discipline is about to um, reach its zenith, you might say. It's about to pay off. Uh, and thankfully, uh, the nation has Samuel as a judge, prophet, whatever term you want to use for him. Um, he, he's been here and he's been ministering. Most of the judges were militarily significant in general, but we've not seen any attempt from a judge to lead the nation to repentance and revival until here, I mean, until Samuel really steps to the forefront. Now, I would argue that he's been engaged in this sort of ministry since he first arrived on the scene. If you go to uh, 1 Samuel 4, it tells us the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And, and really, it means the word of God through Samuel came to all Israel. If God had a message of, um, of retribution, he preached a message of retribution. If God had a message of revival, he preached a message of revival. He's been ministering to the people all along the way. He brought them God's word. And that kind of brings us to this pivotal moment in today's text where the ark has returned and they're about to react to it. With that said, why don't we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. Let's read um, 1 Samuel. Um, we'll start in chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. Um, we will preach beyond that a little bit this morning, um, but we'll, we'll stop for the moment at verse 11. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, um, last week's text. The men of Kirith-Jerim came, took up the ark of the Lord, brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented 
after the Lord. Verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines um, went up against Israel. Um, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Verse 10, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. You may be seated. <coughs> Now, last thing I'll say by way of introduction before we just move through it narratively. Samuel is certainly instrumental here, but you've got to see the big picture. God has put him in place long before these events unfold so that he would be the right man at the right time. But ultimately, as the most recent events have proven, God needs no man to work on his behalf. He can choose to use someone, but the reality is God can do whatever he chooses to do through sovereign means. In just the previous three chapters, he's rebuked Israel um, through the Philistines. He's judged the Philistines through this plague that continually follows the ark around wherever it goes. He's sovereignly orchestrated the return of the ark um, to the nation of Israel while being pulled by two milk cows. God's in charge, and there's no denying that. Okay, Samuel has his role, but don't get stuck on Samuel. You've got to always look beyond him to the Lord. And Israel is finally going to come to a place again where they realize um, that if there is a problem, it's between them and their God, and they have to resolve that issue. Um, the ark has returned, you might say, but they're still stuck in idolatry, and so God is getting ready to press that. Um, and so that's where we plunge in. We start with the repentance here in verse 2. Um, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. <clears throat> so, very plainly, it tells us that the ark returned to Israel. It was left in Kirith-Jerim for 20 years. Um, and I certainly believe a, a simple reading of this text, the most likely causation is that the ark comes, it's left in this kind of um, forgotten city, um, manned by um, no-name Levites, and something begins to happen in the heart of the nation. I believe the nation begins to realize and reflect back on its past glory. In its best days in the Promised Land, um, Israel had a tabernacle that functioned at Shiloh. Um, the ark was in the Holy of Holies as it was supposed to be. The high priest ministered to the nation there and before the Lord. Uh, the remainder of the Levitical priesthood conducted their daily observances of the law. There were sacrifices on the holy days. The sacrificial system, the general worship of Jehovah, went as it was supposed to go. But see, as we're reading in this text, all of that's been gone for over 20 years. 
Shiloh has been captured by the Philistines. The tabernacle is no more. Uh, the ark is parked in the middle of nowhere. And I believe that's how we're to read that. That sense of, of loss and distance from God and an, an, an inability to worship God as, as he had intended for him to be worshipped by his people, that caused the house of Israel to begin to lament. Lament is a, um, a word, it can certainly mean lament, but it means long for, mourned after, or even turned to. And I think it implies to us that they were well aware that there was suddenly something missing. Maybe not suddenly something missing, but something missing um, between them and their God. Oh, the ark is back, but the glory of God has not returned to the nation. And they were still being suppressed by the Philistine invaders. They could no longer really practice their religion openly. The days were hard, and they began to lament. Um, and rightfully, they should be lamenting because they are the ones who've walked away from their God, and they had reaped the whirlwind. But fortunately, they have been given an intercessor, the, the last judge, Samuel. And I believe he's been ministering as we move into this text. He's been laying groundwork um, for this revival for many years, beginning back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 as he brought the word to the people. And I do not believe his words here are a new message. I believe it's the same thing he's been preaching and teaching since he first came to the forefront. But the nation has finally suffered enough to listen. Now, let me just say, again, we want to stay in the text. We want to ex exposit what's written here. But I think we have to be mindful that the text has something to say to us. What's it going to take for us as a people of God to listen to the Word of God afresh and anew? To really do business with God. To not uh, just live in, in sin or, or in the middle of this cycle of, of discipline or, or being judged of God. To be far from God. What's it going to take for us to sincerely desire to be intimate with God again. To repent and be restored and experience this revival that we've already sung about this morning. God engineers circumstances in all of our lives to draw us back to Him, and He has done that with Israel here, and that's what we're studying. And I, I pray we would learn from it. Um, verse 3, Samuel's message to them. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, they've been lamenting. It's built up. They're ready for something afresh and anew to occur. And so Samuel says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. See, notice that first conditional part of Samuel's sentence. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Is this genuine? Do you really mean it? Are you just playing games? That's what Samuel's getting at and it's a fair question because sometimes we all know this to be true when our our circumstances are difficult we will try anything to change the results even giving lip service to God hoping that might help but it's not sincere it's just playing the game so to speak and so Samuel checks their temperature it's been 20 years and now you begin to lament do you mean it is this sincere and I believe at its core that is a gospel statement or are you ready to return with all your heart See, that's what it takes to do business with God. Uh, the word return really pictures the act of repentance. Uh, it's return implies a change of direction. You've been going one way away from God, and it's time to turn and go back toward God. Uh, a willingness here in this text on their behalf to sincerely confess 
finally, after years, that they've been wrong, that they've drifted from God, that they've been engaged in idolatry as a people, and they want to change direction and experience God's forgiveness. That is the gospel. That is the way of salvation. I'm Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all must understand that we start in a position where we've rebelled against God. If we're suffering, we're rightly suffering. Um, we, we've um, run from God and His standards and His principles, and we're dealing with the consequences of our sin. And in that moment, that's when we're to repent. Um, we lament we repent, we cry out for uh, restoration and forgiveness. And so salvation begins with a willingness to admit that we're sinners, with a sin problem that separates us from a holy God. And as Christ says so clearly in, in Luke 13, 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It has to move you to repentance. You turn from your sin, you repent, and you head in a new direction, yielded to God's leadership in our lives. And again, we know from a gospel standpoint that can only happen because Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he defeated death, hell, and the grave and he's made a way for us to be redeemed and restored. That's what salvation looks like and that's what they're being called to. But again, Samuel is pressing this point. It, are, are you sincere? 1 Peter 3.15 You don't always think of this as a text about sincerity, but I believe it's there. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. You can't honor Christ as holy if you're playing games with God, if you're holding out on God, if you're compartmentalizing your faith, if you're keeping one foot in the world and one foot in your religion, so to speak. You honor um, Christ, the Lord, as holy. You're not saved, by the way, um, by how well we follow the Lord after our repentance, but we must be sincere about our desire to repent and turn. And that's what Samuel is pushing Israel to evaluate here. Now, again, personally, I believe he's been ministering to them and calling them, them to repentance for the previous 20 years. But the longer they suffered, the longer Shiloh and the former tabernacle lay in Philistines' hands, uh, the longer the ark simply rested in a forgotten city under the care of a handful of no-name Levites, the more their hearts finally began to turn toward God. And it's a little bit sobering. But what's it going to take, again, for us as a people, as a church, as a nation, as a community, as families, whatever it may be, what's it going to take for us to take our faith seriously? Samuel challenged them. Um, and um, for one of the few times, we see a beautiful response from the people in verses 4 through 6. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the ashtaroth. And again, we, we lose a little something in the cultural interpretation of this. Um, that, that is a thorough repentance. It tells us that they... Um, they completely repudiated um, the idolatry they had descended into. Uh, they put away all the bells, all the Ashtaroth, all the idols, everything about what they had been doing. Um, uh, then Samuel said, Gather all um, at, at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. They put away the bells and the Ashtaroth. Um, they began to serve the Lord only. Baal was the so-called storm god. We've seen him numerous times referenced in Scripture. Um, Ashtarte um, was his consort. Um, there's always 
um, a, a sexual nature applied to the, the two being mentioned together. Ashtarte was the goddess of love and war in, in, in the Near East, or the so-called goddess of love and war. So whenever a temple added Ashtaroth, and Ashtaroth was a some sort of idol or image um, for Ashtarte, um, whenever they added that to Baal worship, there was always sexual immorality and depravity involved. And so verse 4 tells us that they purged the land from, from all those various temples and idols, all the bells, all the ashtaroth throughout the whole land. They, they weren't playing. And Samuel could tell. And so he called a national gathering at Mizpah. That's a, a crossroads city north of Jerusalem, a city which had served as a meeting place previously. If you may remember in Judges 20 and 21 when the nation warred with the tribe of Benjamin um, without a Shiloh, it did kind of make sense as a regional hub to gather the people um, because it was in general the area where Sim Samuel was most prevalent in his ministry. And Israel came to him, gathered, and they solidified their repentance by, it just tells us two simple things, by pouring out water before the Lord and fasting. Those are both uh, real simple pictures of self-denial and repentance. Most importantly, we see their words here. We have sinned against the Lord. It takes a lot to get most of us to say that. But you know what? Revival's just around the ridge. When, when you get to that place, and the nation of Israel, they finally say it. You can't say it any more clearly. We have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no blame, not blaming anybody else, not blaming your circumstances. They take absolute um, responsibility for what they've done. We have sinned against the Lord. And they put away all the bells and all the ashtaroth. They clean things up, and they finally reached a place where they understand that their God is the only true God, and He cannot be worshipped half-heartedly. Uh, syncretism, it's a fancy word, but it simply means the, the willingness of man. We always want to sync up um, worship of Jehovah with the worship of some idol. We want to believe that we can somehow have God and have the world, somehow have God and, and have the approval of man, have God and materialism, whatever it may be. But friends, that kind of syncretism is forbidden by God. It's all God or it's nothing. It's all God or it's wickedness. There, there's no choice here. You cannot worship God and the culture, the approval of man, or, or any other idols. If you're doing so, if you're trying to blend in a bunch of other things, then you're in need of repentance and revival. Psalm 78, 8, and that they should not be like their fathers. And again, this is that judge's cycle. There's, there's always been a generation before who failed and who falled and, and, and moved into idolatry, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. I would argue that we today, we have not learned from our past very well. We don't learn from the biblical past. We don't learn from Israel's past. We don't learn from our own nation's passed very well now we're bowing the knee to a, uh, the preaching of some new sexual morality in our nation and it's not going to end well instead we should be like this first thessalonians 1 for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you how they turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god we should be known as a people who reject materialism and, and sexual immorality and adultery um, idolatry we should be rejecting the things of the world for the worship of the one true god and everyone should know it Turn from those things, serve the living and true God, to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And also in context of the text of Samuel's ministry, 
it's worth pointing out that there is no other judge recorded as having prayed for revival, praying for the nation. Um, only Samuel. Now, they all had a military significance to some degree, um, but Samuel is an intercessor. And, and as the text concludes, we see that he is finally kind of ascended to his rightful role as a judge of the entire nation. They've come to the place where they understand that the nation has been judged because of its sins. Um, the problem's not just the Philistines. The Philistines have arrived because Israel has a spiritual problem. Israel was idolatrous, and um, Eli, Hopni, and Phinehas were part and parcel for what the rest of the nation was doing. And God was disciplining them, and he was calling them back to repentance. And now they've finally turned, and they've completed a vast change. They've confessed their sin. Uh, they've purified themselves from their sin. They've purged the land of idols, and, and they've begun to move in a different direction. And if there's a pattern in this that we would do well to, to learn from, it's this. When God's people experience revival, that's often when the enemy comes in and to stir the pot just a little bit. But attacking a nation in revival is not always the wisest thing, and that's what we see next. We see the route. And now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, now understand, the, the nation gathered for revival. They're not putting together a, a war council. Um, they're not bringing arms. They're not um, ready to fight. They're, they're gathering at Mizpah to continue this revival before God and Samuel. But when the Philistines heard it, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Um, they assume it's for battle. It's for war. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, don't miss the reversal um, that has occurred. Um, back in chapter 4, when the Philistines first show up, uh, Israel had no fear. Um, they march out to battle assuming they're going to win. They roll out the ark as a magic talisman. It's the Philistines who were all afraid. Now it's completely reversed. Okay, um, The Philistines hear about Israel's national gathering, assume they're gathering for war. Um, probably they've heard of um, the Israelites' Um, destroying some of the idols and Philistine-controlled territory. They assume the worst. They, they march out to war. And when they gather in force, it's like a shockwave passes through Israel. The people of Israel heard it. They were afraid of the Philistines. But this time their response is so much more biblical than what they've done in the past. Rather than rolling out the ark like a tank, a magic tank, rather than assuming, um, regardless of their behavior, that they're good with God and God's going to provide, they turned their God-given judge and the intercessor, and they asked Samuel to intercede between them and God. Verses 8 and 9, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They're not looking at the nations. They're not looking at military might. They're not looking at any man-made power. They're looking to God. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, again, I do think there's a modern picture here that the enemy hates revival, um, and he will always try to disrupt it when it occurs. I also think there's a picture here that we as a people and our nation, we have no chance of, of getting better spiritually until there is truly revival. Um, but that's beyond the scope of this text. Staying in the text, the, the people trust the spiritual leadership of Samuel here. They beg him to intercede for them. Um, and, and notice that he doesn't just pray. 
he offers up a burnt offering uh, according to the standards of God's covenant with Israel. Um, a male spotless lamb um, offers that back to the Lord as, as a sacrifice. The Lord hears and answers his prayer. Sacrifice of the lamb, I think, certainly should remind us that even um, the, the gift of prayer and being intimate with God and crying out to him doesn't come cheap. Um, the way was opened for us through uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, obviously, that lamb pictures Jesus as the Lamb of God, our true, complete intercessor. Um, we can only pray to God because of what Jesus has done. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Um, but they're finally learning their lesson. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They say, Samuel, pray to God. Samuel cries out to the Lord. He offers these offerings. And what we see next is, is what we should be able to trust in. Um, the language here is very similar to uh, the, the birth narrative of Samuel that we first saw in, in chapter 1, um, where it tells us they rose early in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkaniah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. That is a, a covenant phrase. We sang about covenant a little bit ago. It's telling us that God sees, God knows, and God responds in faithfulness to his people. Um, well, he sees and he knows. And as Samuel cries out here, he responds in faithfulness. He's hearing um, their, their cry. So we continue the narrative. And don't miss the, the drama that's implied. The, the clock is ticking. The, the people, they're not armed. They've come out for a church meeting. They, they've gathered in, in a, a big crowd to have a revival, and suddenly the Philistine army approaches. And, and literally, I think we're to read it, that they surround Israel. Okay? Um, they're, they're armed to the teeth. They're ready to go to war. The people simply turn to Samuel and ask him to pray. And as the trap closes, he prays, and God remembers Israel. Samuel was offering up uh, the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Again, I believe we should hear Hannah's prayer echoing here. It says that the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. Well, back in, in 1 Samuel 2, um, Hannah prayed this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. Baal and Dagon were supposedly um, the gods of the weather. But God is controlling the weather here. He thunders and routs the Philistines. He threw them into confusion. Same phraseology used in Exodus. Same phraseology used in Joshua when God judges um, Israel's enemies. The people repented, they returned to the Lord, and he provided them with victory. That's a pattern we should be familiar with, by the way, church. You repent, you return, and you experience revival. Okay, Not so that you can get whatever you want, but it's so that you can be right with God. They were right with God, and God provided for them. Now, we press on, though. Samuel tries to seal this moment and the lessons involved here in the, the national conscience. Okay, um, They finally, they've had a moment of revival. Let's not forget it, right? So the rock. Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Now, again, I, 
I think when you read this and you read about a stone being set up, we're supposed to think about what we've been studying. Uh, back in the last chapter, uh, the ark was sent back to uh, the nation of Israel being pil- pulled by those milk cows, and, and they kind of come up into the middle of nowhere, and they stop right in front of a large stone, you may remember. cart came into the field of Joshua Beshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. Well, now in this chapter, we see Samuel taking a stone um, and, and setting it up between Mizpah um, and, and Shin. What's he doing? Well, I think he's trying to, to anchor this moment and help them remember um, where they have been and what they have gone through and how they've been revived. And I believe he's helping them understand that the ark is not what brought the glory of God back to the nation. Yeah, there was a stone of remembrance where where it came up and parked, but now he's driving down a new stone of remembrance because the glory of God had not returned with the ark. It had returned when the people lamented, repented, and returned to the Lord. And Samuel wants the people to see God's faithfulness here. So thus, he kind of commissions this stone, or uh, literally the word is Ebenezer. That's what an Ebenezer is. It's a stone of remembrance. And he commissions it this way. He says, Till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. Simple way of saying that he's always been with us, that he's sovereign, that he was with us even when we were far from him. Everything he, he's done is, is for our good and his glory, even the hard things, even the times when our enemies defeated us. That's what he's saying. Till now the Lord has helped us. Let me ask you, can you say that? Do you feel that in your heart and in your bones? Uh, yes, I know our lives are often like roller coasters, but here's the reality. When, um, when we seem far from God, it's not because he, He's moved, it's because we've moved. We need to return. We need to repent. Um, we need that revival because God is always with us. He is sovereignly orchestrating all things for our, um, for our good and His glory. It's the way it works. Return to Him. Trust in His promises. I hope you can see God's hand moving even when your life is hard. But also think there's an implied question here. Until now the Lord has helped us. What about tomorrow? Well, the reality is it's simple cause and effect. If God has been with us every day until now, He's going to be with us tomorrow, right? We can trust Him. Whatever's next to come, whatever uh, the next challenge is, heartache, difficulty, uh, the next mistake you make, what's God's response going to be? It's going to be the same as it was before. He's the same God. He's doing the same. He's offering you grace and mercy. If you'll just lament, repent, return to Him, He's helped us until now. Will we continue to walk with Him? I think all that, again, Samuel is really pushing it here are their hearts sincere does this revival have legs will you remember him and so thus this Ebenezer a stone of remembrance um, to permanently immortalize this moment of revival and the lessons included Uh, Ebenezer's are uh, they appear um, more frequently in scripture than you may remember and again Ebenezer it's not Ebenezer Scrooge from a Christmas carol Ebenezer is literally a stone of remembrance Jacob practiced this after his dream, what we call Jacob's Ladder, um, in the book of Genesis before he left his homeland. Joshua practiced this when he led the nation of Israel uh, across um, uh, the river Jordan. They, they carried stones out of the river to mark that passage. It's immortalized in a familiar hymn to many of us, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance. 
Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. And Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance. Our modern practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper are modern forms of Ebenezer's. Um, we're going to conclude uh, 2023 with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and you might say kick off 2024, um, because it's a, it's a stone of remembrance. It's a marker. He, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the Lord's Supper should help us remember his body was broken and his blood was shed. We practice baptism not because it saves or it redeems. It does not. The blood of Jesus saves and redeems. But we practice baptism because it's a visible picture. It's a stone of remembrance of how uh, we passed from death into life and we've been made clean by the blood of Jesus. Uh, Christmas time. You, you have a Christmas tree most likely. Why? Because we worship trees or, or we believe in nature? No, because a Christmas tree is a symbol of this holiday season, and the reality is, even though we may have forgotten, the holiday season is about Jesus. We celebrate Christmas because God gave us the Son of God, born as a child in a manger, so that He might live an atoning life, die an atoning death, and be resurrected to defeat death, hell, and the grave. That's what the tree really represents, if you're being honest about it. It's a stone of remembrance. So that's what Samuel does here. He, he drives down this stone of remembrance to help them remember that till now the Lord has helped us. As R.A. Torrey has written, these kinds of Ebenezers, they should be soft pillows for a tired heart. When you've forgotten, when you run out of energy, when you seem far from the Lord, look to the stones. Um, remember uh, Lord's Supper and baptism and, and Christmas. Till now the Lord has helped us. Philippians 1 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Samuel's Ebenezer was silently, steadily reminding them that God would continue to do what he had promised to do as long as they did not return to their former sins. The Ebenezer was a, a monument to revival. And the lessons, thankfully, in this text, they, they at least echo for a little while. Uh, we see the respite next here in verse 13 through 14. So the Philistines were subdued, did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel um, were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Clearly, Israel regained at least some of the territory that it had lost to the Philistines over the past 20 plus years. Um, and the implication here is this did not change as long as Samuel was in authority over the people. As they submitted to his leadership and he submitted to God, the nation was in good hands and it found peace. Um, that peace even it, it passed along between the Israel, Israelites and the Amorites. Um, Amorites here is just a blanket term for um, the pre-Israel Canaanites that had lived in the land. Um, God had told Israel to chase them out to destroy them but in many cases they did not they allowed them to um, to stay in that area as subjugated peoples they lived among the nation of israel and from time to time they would rise up in rebellion and cause problems well in this point in time because of this revival because of samuel's leadership uh, and the nation's ability to push back the philistines the amorites they shut up too um, they went quiet now notably 
Eli had judged Israel for 40 years, and he led the nation into catastrophe. Um, Samuel, on the other hand, leads them into revival and peace. Um, other judges had military success, but none helped author national revival except for Samuel. Now, if, if I can flash forward without ruining the next few weeks, we're going to see Israel get squeezed again. Well, what do you think they're going to do when they get squeezed again? See, this is why this matters, because here's what, I know what most of us do when we get squeezed again. Whatever we're prone to do in the flesh, that is our natural reaction. If you're a, a fighter or a puncher, you punch. If you're prone to depression or, or, or morbidity, you, you swallow up into self-pity. Whatever your normal reaction is, that's what happens when you get punched the next time. Well, the nation of Israel has this habit. When life gets difficult, they always turn um, to the mechanisms of the world. Uh, they they want to do what the nations around them do. They want to do what the people around them. If they have big armies, they want a big army. And if they have a king, they want a king. And that's what's going to happen the next time they get punched. They forget the whole lesson here that till now the Lord has helped us. They don't fast. They don't pray. They don't beg for Samuel to intercede. They demand a king. And that's going to be our next series. Now, uh, thankfully, we're, we're not there yet. For the moment, um, as we're leaving them here today, they have peace with their enemies, both within and without. And that's what happens when we're right um, with God, to some degree. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It doesn't mean we have... Uh, peace with everyone but it, it means we can be at peace regardless of what's happening because we're right with God because our hearts are right but we wrap up we see the routine last here verses 15 through 17 Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life that's a good statement he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel Gilgal and Mizpah he, he judged Israel in all these places then he would re return home to Ramah for his home was there, or he returned to Ramah for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. He built there an altar to the Lord. It's worth noting that the cities mentioned here, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, um, they're all located in the tribal territory of Benjamin. Um, I certainly believe there's a period where Samuel's influence broadened throughout the nation. Uh, that's probably there to kind of let us know that his circuit of judging was restricted um, Israel never quite embraced him as well as they should have, would be my guess. Um, the nation would come to him to be judged, to be instructed, to be advised. Um, but I, I think there's a little foreshadowing that his influence was never as strong as it should be. Um, but his roots, they're in Benjamite territory. And that probably foreshadows why the nation would embrace Saul, a Benjamite, as their first king so quickly. They were kind of used to seeing a Benjamite in charge. Uh, but again, that's all to come. For the moment, it would seem the national revival is strong. Samuel's influence is powerful. Um, we've said it before, but it's worth saying again. He is a symbol or a type of Jesus in this way. Um, the nation is blessed um, with a prophet, priest, intercessor who's leading them in the right way. Um, so there's peace. 
And as the text finishes, we get a a little reminder, too, that Samuel was the same at home as he was in his ministry. And when he traveled to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and and judged Israel, um, uh, doing his ministry, he, he was on task, he was serving the Lord. But when he went back home in Ramah, God was still the center um, of that segment of his life as well. And, and he would turn to Ram, Ramah for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. He did the same thing at home as he did when he was on the road ministering. And he built there an altar to the Lord. It's telling us about his authenticity. It's telling us about his sincerity of heart. Now we're going to see a, a little drama in his home here in a few weeks, but it doesn't appear to be because he's compartmentalized his faith like many of us are prone to do. He was absolutely sincere, again, whether he was on the judicial circuit or he was in his home. And so as our musicians come, that's going to be my question for you this morning. Obviously, if you don't know Jesus, you've got to start there. But if you're a follower of Christ and you've been listening to all this, let me, let me ask you, are you mindful that till now the Lord has helped us? Or are you sincere in your following Him? Is your relationship with God the rest of the week, the same as it is on Sunday? Uh, do you compartmentalize your life? Are you the same at work, at school, or in your home? Because if, if you want to truly claim that you're seeking God with your whole heart, there's no room for compartmentalizing your relationship with God. You can't turn it on and turn it off. He must rule everywhere or He rules nowhere. So where are you at personally? If, if you're not sincere, you're going to experience this same cycle that Israel experienced over and over again, and you're primarily going to get stuck in the first two symptoms, rebellion and retribution. There's going to be discipline. There's going to be something, an unrest in your life because God is calling you to repentance. Why not learn from Israel in this text? Why not confess your sin, repent, return to God? Why not proceed to that revival pray that the Christmas season would be a part of that for you. Why don't we stand and let's respond to him today.